one of the patterns and habits that we have here at Uni Church is to basically work through books of the Bible to see what God has to say to us. So we believe at Uni Church that God's Word is uh, God's Word to us. And you don't really want to hear what's going on in the crazy guy out the front's head. We want to hear what's going on from the God of the universe. And you don't want to hear me speak. You want to hear what God has to say, which is why we've been working through this book of Exodus and seeing what God has to say to us about who He is and who we are and what He's doing throughout history. And this week, we get to the pinnacle chapter. So why don't we pray that God would help us to understand what He has to say to us. And we might come away from having heard His Word read changed. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have heard Your Word read tonight and as we work through it now, we ask that we would not just see words on a page, but we would see the actions and account of the Creator of this universe in history. We would see who You are and why You act, and that we might then respond in a way that trusts You and Your plan for us. We pray that Your Spirit would help us to understand the truth of Your Word tonight, that we might walk away from Your Word changed. We pray this in the name of your Son and for His glory. Amen. If you think of the book of Exodus, the thing that pops into your mind is like these two walls of water and dry ground either side. Kind of like them, right? That's what they're there for. If you can't see them, that's supposed to be like dry ground and water. And I kind of feel like I'm walking across the, the Red Sea here. It's kind of fun, right? Uh, the kind of key event throughout history that, that people, even the secular world, refers to the God of the Bible is the God who took His people out of Egypt and He parted the waters. I remember, um, I think I was about 16 and my family went to America, only time I've ever been to America. Um, I went to the West Coast uh, and there I think we went to Universal Studios and they had this kind of ride where you could go along and you could go through the waters that actually parted. Uh, now you're on a train, so it's a little bit different. But, um, you know, the water's part, and on either side, there are all these walls of water. Like, this is, this is pretty cool, but, you know, you could work it out, and you could work out what was actually going on. They just, just it was kind of fake. Um, the key thing with the passage that we've got in front of us today is continuing this story of God taking His people into His place and putting them under His rule to be the King of the world. And what we're seeing, really, is this story of how God does it. Uh, there's two kind of main characters throughout the book of Exodus at the start. There's Pharaoh, this king of the Egyptians, the one who thinks he's in control of everything and is holding God's people tight in Egypt because he loves his comfort because they're slaves. They're slaves to him and his people. He loves the comfort of what they provide and, and the joy that comes with that. And so he wants to keep them in slavery. Then we meet the other character, which is the God of the universe. His name is Yahweh and he's revealed himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and to the people called the Israelites to say that there is only one true God. And through the last few chapters, we've had this battle on our hands of seeing the way that, well, Pharaoh has tried to resist God, who has said, let my people go. And God has continued to show him that he is in control of the universe. He sent plague after plague after plague. Rivers turned to blood, hail from the sky, frogs everywhere, gnats, stuff that kind of crazy people can't even replicate. I can't replicate many of those, but apparently some of them they did. And what we, what we get is this picture of a God who is in control of the universe. Finally, Pharaoh relents and says, go, get out of here, take your people, go. 
And the Egyptians walk out of, sorry, the, the Israelites walk out of Egypt taking like, all the good things that the Egyptians give them. And there's this kind of moment we saw last week of them coming away, coming away from slavery, being freed. Freedom is this key theme that we see this week. Well, they leave Egypt. And we read in chapter 3, 17, that they walk into a precarious situation. Uh, chapter 13, verse 17, for those who are looking up in a paper Bible or it's on the screen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea, along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. There's kind of a bittersweet kind of moment here. As they leave, they're in battle formation, kind of ready for war. There's a few of them at this point, 600,000 men. So you can imagine with women and children how many people are leaving. This is no kind of small party. There's a lot of people leaving and they're leaving Egypt, but not the normal way. Because he knows the human heart. God knows what we are like. And he knows when things get tough, we're so tempted to be afraid of the world around us and not trust him. So he leads them in the wilderness. But the problem is, as he goes out towards the wilderness, there's not much around. It's wilderness. And there's this Red Sea that kind of forms a barrier. And then we read the next verse in verse 19. And it's kind of odd. You're kind of like seeing them walk out in battle formation. And then we read this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. You know, what's going on there? Why have they recorded this the bones of Joseph. You think about the great battle scenes that you've seen in movies throughout your life or read in books or in the history, pages of history and you don't think, oh yeah, and you know, Uncle Moses is carrying Joseph's bones with him. I guess it's a bit odd, right? I don't know how many of you take skeletons when you go on a tramp. Like, it's just a bit of fun. We're taking skeletons with us or you, you, move, you move somewhere. You're like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, Sarah and I and our family, we moved from uh, Sydney to, um, to Auckland now, I didn't go back to my parents' place and big up, dig up my favorite dog, Jessie, and bring her bones with me. It's just not normal. I, I, like, what, why is this going on at this point? Well, it's because Moses is recording here that this is part of a bigger plan. What's on view in this part of the Bible isn't necessarily just some people getting freed, although freedom is what's on view. It's God fulfilling His promises. It's God sticking to His plan. What we see throughout the book of Exodus is that really it's all about God and that He is the one who fulfills His plan with His people, no matter who is against Him, no matter what the odds look like, God's plan always works. You see, and what this reminds us with the bones here is that Joseph had said, Joseph had an expectation that God would take His people out of Egypt. Because Joseph knew the promise that really controls the whole Bible. It's the trajectory of all that we see, that promise that God had given Abraham back in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, that he would take Abraham, who was childless at that point, and, and give him children and make him into a great nation. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. At 90, he says this without having any kids yet. He says, through you, Abraham, through your seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. And I will take you into your own land and you will inherit that. I will be your God and your people will be my people. 
There's this great promise there. And Joseph said, this is what will happen. When you do that, when you go, take my dead bones with you, because I want my bones to be in the place that God has promised us as His people. The promise of God is what's on view. And then we kind of stand back and see that there's more than just God's promises on view. Yes, He is the God who has promised to fulfill His promises, to, to, to come through with what He has said, but He's also the God who promises His presence. Look at what happens in 3 verse, 13 verse 21. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. What's going on here? God is with His people. Can you imagine this? It sounds pretty out there to me. I, I, I find it hard to imagine. But you're walking in the wilderness towards the sea and there is a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night leading you the direction you need to go. Man, imagine that, going, well, God is really with me. You know, you hear people rock up and go, yeah, God's with me. They had God with them. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. I mean, have, have any of you ever had, everywhere you walk, a pillar of cloud kind of in front of you? Like, it's never happened to me, or, or a pillar of fire. I mean, how great would that be? You just, everywhere you go, there's this fire in front of you or behind you. It's pretty cool, right? The best thing I've, like, the closest thing I could think of is like a head torch, right? You go out at night, you get a head torch on, like, this is cool, I can see wherever I go. They had God, the creator of the universe with them, the one who had just pulled them out of slavery and had shown Pharaoh he was but a pawn compared to the true king with them. And there's a little side note here for us to recognize. Sometimes we hear this, that God led them by a pillar of cloud in day and a pillar of fire at night, and we kind of go, we expect God to do the same for us today. Maybe not with a pillar of cloud and fire, but maybe we expect God to help us in all our decisions. We, we expect God to guide us and lead us in all sorts of different directions. Who should I marry? What course should I take? What job should I do? Where should I live? Who will I flat with? What will I eat for dinner? God, please help. Right? There's all sorts of decisions. That we, we, want, we sometimes expect God to say, you know, I don't know, whether it's going to be neon lights or whether it's going to be open um, up the cupboard and the, the just, I don't know, the packet of two-minute noodles jumps out at us and we're like, yes, carbohydrates. That's what I need. Right? Uh, but we, we kind of expect in some ways God to guide us in the everyday decisions. But here's the thing, I don't think I see anywhere in the Bible where He promises to do that. Where He promises that in the little itsy-bitsy decisions of life, that He will give us guidance. That He will step out and say, this is what you will do. He will speak like He did at Jesus' baptism from the clouds and say, this is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. Sure, it could happen. That's not how God promises to work. The thing I want to show you here is, we should expect guidance, and we should expect guidance just like the guidance they got here. Not with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, but guidance in line with God's promises. Where was this pillar of cloud and fire leading Israel? To the land God had promised them. It was very clear where they were going. They were going to this promised land and the pillar of cloud and fire was taking them there and leading them in that sense. God has been very clear with us. Lord, what do you want me to do with, your, with my life? 
Serve Him. What do I do in this decision? Serve Him. Put Him first. Worship me. Lord, please guide me in, in, in what, what, I, what I need to do. God, God is very clear in what He wants us to be. He wants us to trust His Son who has come for us. He wants us to put God in the center of our lives, which we'll see in a moment is really true freedom. And He does guide us in those areas. He gives us His Word. He gives us His Spirit. And when we ask God, What's like, what color car should I have? It's kind of like, who cares? Have you seen Jesus? We shouldn't expect God to guide every little detail of our lives. We're free. But we should ask Him to guide us into what matters. Who is King and how we live for Him. God's presence is with His people. And what an amazing presence it is. But the problem for the Egyptians, sorry, for the, for the Israelites at this point is that there is someone else who wants to be with them. Have a look at 14 verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We've released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the Israelites who were going out triumphantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army chased after them, caught up with them as they camped by the sea. See, Pharaoh is just like every other human. How clear a sign could you have from God that this was not a God to muck around with? You just lost every firstborn animal and child across the whole of Egypt and you still want to pursue these people? But he changed his minds. How often we make dumb choices. Because we want to be comfortable. We want to be served. We want a life like the way we'd like to think about it rather than recognizing the truth of who God is and what he's done. He changed his mind. And what's interesting to note here is something we saw last week, but even more of it. It was Pharaoh's idea here to try and destroy God's plan. He's evil. He's against God. He's anti-God. He's like, I don't, I don't care who this God is. I want my people back. I want my comfort. I want them serving me. And so he, he concocts this evil plan to go and get them and bring them back. It was Pharaoh's idea to go and do this. But did you notice? The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites. There's something in this of, of the God is in control even of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's plan was to destroy God's people. It was evil. But Pharaoh's plan was actually included in God's plan to bring about his purposes, to show the world that he is God and he will not be mucked around with. See, there's a sense here in which we see God is so in control of the world that even Pharaoh's evil plans fit into God's greater picture to show how great He is. 14 verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. How would you feel if that was you? If we here were standing on the edge of the Red Sea and we heard in the background the kind of thundering noise of horses' hooves and chariots, we saw in the distance kind of dust rising. And you heard the war cry get closer and closer and closer. 
This is not just some war movie we're watching. You're there and they're coming to kill you. And you've got to understand, chariots were like the F-35 strike fighters of the ancient world. If you had a chariot and a horse, you could take out heaps of people. Hardly anyone could get you. These guys had 600 chariots. Imagine 600 F-35 strike force you know, planes, jets. Right? Who can stand up and go, yeah, I'll take a jet out just on your own with your own bare hands. I'll catch it in my teeth and chew it up. You know, Who can do that? That's, that's like what it feels like. You're standing here. You've got all your stuff with you, everything. You've left Egypt, your cows, your goats, your sheep, your camels, your donkeys. They're all there. And then your families, you're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. And what do you see? I'm dead. Death is coming toward me. What would you say? How do you feel at that moment? Fourteen, verse 10. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. You see here, their first thing is terror. They cry out to God, but then they're like, stuff this. Watch what happens next. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? Like, they start blaming Moses. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? You idiot. Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better off for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly they changed from the God who was with them in a pillar of cloud and fire, who ripped them out of slavery in Egypt and, and saved them from all the plagues that their firstborn are still alive because of the blood of a lamb that was wiped on the doorpost, to now we would have been better off in Egypt. How quickly the human heart changes. See, at this moment when they left Egypt, they thought they were free. They thought they were free from the Egyptians, free from slavery, from the requirements of laws and people over them and, and governors and rulers, potentially even free from God. There was no requirements from God. God had just done this for them and they feel totally free. It's kind of a picture of modern freedom, isn't it? To have no one over you. No rules, no control. You belong to yourself. You've got no lord or master. It's free. You can just drive wherever you want, sing whatever you sing. You know, that's this idea that we love to be totally free, except they weren't. They were under incredible terror. They thought they were the freest in the world, but they were still slaves to fear. And what we'll see here is that there's no middle ground, no place of being freed from our old oppressors and, and free totally on ourselves. You are either a slave to God or you're a slave to something else. You are never your own. This idea of freedom, we love it, but I don't think we quite get it. See, all of us live for something. Now, let's just do a kind of thought experiment in your own head right now. Um, Finish this sentence. I would be happy and fulfilled if or when blank. I will be happy or fulfilled if or when what? Have a think through that. What's the first thing that comes into your head? We all live for something. We all have some sort of purpose in life. Has anyone, has anyone here ever seen the Rocky films? Sylvester Stallone, kind of show of hands if you have. 
Yeah, this won't work as well, will it? Oh. All right, everyone's, maybe because I'll, I'll do this so well, you're all going to go away and watch Rocky, okay? I think there's only six films, six, Some, something like that. So you, you, you've got heaps of time. Rocky's a boxer, and his one aim in life is to keep this guy Ch- Chase, Chas, his name is, uh, he, he's, he's to actually go the, go the length in the ring with him. And uh, there's this moment in, in one of the films where Rocky's sitting on the bed next to his girlfriend, and he's just kind of taking in life. And he says in the Sylvester Stallone, do you know who Sylvester Stallone is? Yeah, yeah, well, a few more, okay, right. Because it's going to be really awkward as I say this in his kind of way. But anyway, here we go. He, he goes kind of like, he's like, so the one thing in life that makes me keep going, what gets me up in the day, it's something like this, right? What gets me up every day is I just want to go the length with Chase. I just want to stand in the ring to the end. And you're like, this is what he lives for. And then he says this awesome line. I want to get to the end of my life knowing that I'm not a bum. I want to get to the end of my life knowing I'm not a bum. That I actually did something. That I stood the line. That I went the distance in the ring with the world's greatest boxer and I stayed. That is what made Rocky do all that he did. It's what he lived for. It's it's the reason that he had to live. But here's the thing. Whatever you live for, you end up serving. Whatever you live for, you end up serving. Whatever you live for, it's it's controlling you. Whatever you think that is really significant in your life, that is something that you, you have to have, means that you'll do just about anything to get it. And so Rocky walks into the ring and gets smashed up consistently compromises family and his health and life and just because he's got to have this going the distance with this guy. So it is with us. Whatever we have to have, we end up serving. It ends up being so important to us that we'll do anything to get it, whether it be a career or a job or a reputation or a relationship. We we just strive to, to get them. And anything you have to have, ends up being something that controls you. Do you see that? If you have to have it, then it becomes the controlling force in your life. You're going to see this again and again as we read through the rest of the book of Exodus. Israel do not want to think of themselves as slaves. They don't. They don't want to think of themselves as slaves to anything, but we're going to see that they are. In fact, they're so warped in their view of the world and wanting freedom that they kind of say weird things. Number one, in this passage, they go, we told you we didn't want to leave Egypt. Actually, that's not remembering well, because they didn't. It's not recorded anywhere. And maybe they said it and it wasn't recorded, but it's not recorded anywhere in Exodus that they said, we don't want to leave. They said, as for us, we're out, we'll go. This is the true and living God. We're with Him. But then as soon as the tables turned, they're freaked out. They're like, we want to go back. And because what's controlling them? Their fear, their desire to be freer than what they think they're going to get. In chapter 16, verse 3, you see this other line, and it's pretty crazy. Listen to what they say. It's on the screen. In Egypt, we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us out into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. They're like, we want our food. I'd rather be back in Egypt because Egypt was all nice and rosy. When we are striving for something that we think will give us our freedom, when we're striving for something that we think that will, will fulfill us and satisfy us, we kind of don't see it in the right way. They didn't have pots of meat, they were in slavery. Their the perception of reality is totally twisted and warped. Have you ever been there? 
when you want something so much that you're willing to sacrifice anything for it. A mark in a test. Relationships go. Morals go. We start cutting corners. Relationships. We'll do anything to, to be with that person, even lie. Put on a, a false front. Sabotage some, someone else's relationship with them. Once we find something that gives us our ultimate purpose, we'll do anything to keep it and we'll blow things out of proportion. There's no way we want to think of ourselves as slaves. There's no one that naturally kind of goes, yeah, I'm, slave. I'm a slave to something. I don't know if any of you woke up today going, yep, I'm a slave. My guess is you didn't, but you are. Everyone is a slave to something. You don't notice what you're a slave to until those things start to fail. So we start to lose them. And they start going away from us, whether that's our, our grade average at uni, whether that's a relationship, whether that's children or family or friends. Whatever those things are, they can be so important to us. But once they start slipping away from us, we, we want to get them back. And suddenly we become frantic and we chase it. The moment you lose it, it's the moment it controls you. I must get that back. My reputation, my popularity, my bank account. I must have it. And so you start living a life that is enslaved to it. Do you see? Whatever you live for will control your life and enslave you, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Money, marriage, children, reputation, marks, job, career, popularity. Suddenly you must have it, and when it slips away, you will do anything. We often think of the story of Exodus, that its main point is what God said, let my people go. There's definitely a big part. We think of Exodus as these people that God had chosen to bless, taking them out of Egypt and bringing them into their land. And it's all about saving the people, but we miss the main point. God says, let my people go. And then he has another line after it. Do you remember what it is? So they might worship me. Let my people go so they might worship me. He says it five times. Um, salvation comes not just as an escape from one slave to another. Salvation comes when we worship God. When we put in place the true one to serve. We become a slave to the true master, the good master, and we serve him. To serve anything or anyone other than God will end in absolute terror. And that's why at this moment, the Egyptians are terrified. Sorry, the, the Hebrews are terrified of the Egyptians. Because they're free, they think. To stand on their own two feet before Pharaoh's 600 chariots and army. Friends, we need to be saved. Not, we need to be saved from not serving God. I'll say it again. We need to be saved from not serving God. Because if you're not serving the true and living God, then you're slave to something that will someday eat you out and kill you. You need God's help to escape it. Because someday it will get you. Israel at this point are terrified because they have lost sight of the plan of God. 
They've lost sight of who made these promises. And as they look around, all they can see are all the anti-God forces in the world. Pharaoh's army coming, flaming toward them. Kind of like us at times, we can be standing around seeing all the anti-God things around us and think, man, they're too big. I've got no hope. What can I do? And we can miss the, the picture of what it is to serve God. I want you to stop for a second. While Israel are terrified, did you notice Moses? Did you notice Moses? Have a look at 14 verse 13. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. <laughs> like, come on. Is that not a Hallmark card? I mean, who, who says that? that, that that's crazy. There's, there's like 600 chariots coming towards and Moses goes, don't be afraid. You're like, what is wrong with you, dude? Why would he say that? Listen again. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Moses stands there with great confidence, not in himself, that he can somehow beat these chariots. There's nothing about him that will do anything before these chariots. He says that the deliverance will come from the Lord, from God. It's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with the God who has just saved you. There's a little phrase at the end of this, and you kind of, you miss it, unless you kind of look in detail. Moses here says, don't be afraid, stand firm, see the Lord's salvation. He'll provide for you today. The Egyptians you see, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. What's with the last bit? You must be quiet. Is that like, are we going to win quietly? If we just stand here quietly, then everything will be sorted? Like, you kind of like, there's some odd bits in this whole section. But I think this is what Moses is saying to Israel. Remember, they're there, they're complaining, we would have been better off back in Egypt. Moses is saying, God will fight, shut up. Shut up. Trust God. Who do you think you are thinking you know something better than the God who's just sent all these plagues on Israel? Shut up and trust Him. For He is God. You must be quiet. I think they're just being polite. Right? You can imagine Him. Shut up and trust God. Then we hear that this pillar of cloud moved between them and the Egyptians. God protects His people. He stands there and all night there's this barrier and they can't get through. And then we read what happens in verse 21 of chapter 14. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. And we hear that God throws the Egyptians into chaos. They kind of come in after them and they just don't know what's happening. So much so, the Egyptians go, the Lord of the, the Hebrews is fighting for them. The Egyptians realize what's going on. 14.26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. 
The God who in Genesis 1 separated the waters above from the waters below to create life on this earth, who gathered the waters to create dry land and and water, here separates the Red Sea to make space for His people, to bring them out to worship Him. And then, just like He did in Genesis 9 with the flood, God brings the waters of His judgment on the Egyptian army. Pharaoh, who wanted to kill the firstborn males of God's people in the river Nile, is now wiped out by the very water that he tried to beat God with. The whole army gone. It is very clear what is, who is in control here. But this event is an event that God wants His people to remember. You know, it's referred to directly 24 times just in the Old Testament as the key event of God saving His people. Listen to how visual Moses is so that others can remember. And put yourself here. This is not just some distant story. Imagine standing, lapping with the, with the water's edge. Verse 29 of chapter 14. The Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day... The Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What a visual symbol. This is not a God to be mucked around with. This is not a God to cross. This is not a God to think you can stand up to Him, even if you're the king and pharaoh of Egypt with your 600 chariots. This is a God who is in control of everything. And His judgment is poured out here like the judgment in the days of Noah is now poured out with the crushing power of this Red Sea coming back over the Egyptians. If you saw that, if you were standing there that day with with the Red Sea lapping at your feet and you saw dead Egyptian bodies and chariot wheels throughout, how would you respond? What would you say to this God? Have a look at verse 31. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in Him and His servant Moses. Shut up and trust God. That's what he's saying here. They feared Yahweh, this God. They responded to Him rightly. They like hit themselves in the head and went, yeah, that's right. He is God. The walls of judgment didn't come crashing down on them, but did on the Egyptians. They trusted Him and in His servant Moses. That day, Israel crossed from death to life, from slavery to freedom to worship the true and living God. But there's one more thing that I think is a little bit odd in this story. I'm going to come back to it. It's chapter 14, verse 15. It's on the screen. And think through, the passage seems to compare Israel and their distrust of God's promises to Moses, who trusts God. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with him. You know, shut up and listen to God. But look at what happens at, at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses in the midst of this, why are you crying out to me? Hang on a minute. What did Moses say to God? It was the Egyptians that were crying out. It was the Egyptians that were whinging about God saving them. Why is God here having a go at Moses? Why are you crying out to me? Why does Moses get the blame? 
I think it's because the writer is trying to show us, as he's God, there's something special about Moses. Two times in Exodus, Moses is referred to as God. It's as if he is God. It's in 4.16 and 7.1, if you want to check them out later. There is one man here that is so identified with God in Moses that God's powers are in him. He raises his hand and the waters part. He throws a staff to the ground and it turns into a snake. The powers of God seem to be coming through Moses. He's someone very, very special. But in this verse we see there is one man who is so identified with the Israelites that when the Israelites do something wrong and complain to God, he is their representative and gets the blame. Moses here is rebuked, even though he hasn't been doing what he's getting rebuked for. He gets the rebuke the people deserve. He's rebuked as if he'd done it, if he'd done what the people had done. Their rebellion against God is kind of put onto him at this moment. And he gets the rebuke they deserve because he's what you call their mediator, their go-between, between God and the people. As the people hear Moses, they hear God speak. As, as God hears Moses, he hears the people speak. So Moses has this amazing role here to be the go-between between God and his people. There's one point a little later on where Moses does this even more clearly. He's worried about God wiping out people and he says, God, blot my name out of your book rather than wipe out these people. God says, no, that's not for you. Moses gets the role of mediator but he doesn't get that there is a greater one coming who will do exactly what he asks. See, Moses here is rebuked for one sin in one verse. But when Jesus came, he takes the crushing judgment of God for the whole world on his shoulders so that we might be washed clean, that we might cross over from death to life. Jesus is the great Moses figure the one that Moses is pointing forward to. You think through the story of Exodus of Egypt, is slavery to themselves and they get freed to serve God. In Jesus, God has come. Listen to what he says in, Jesus says in John 5, 24. He says this, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is a claim here from the most influential man in history that says if you hear his word and you believe in him, you will live forever. Death will have no effect on you. You might die for a short while, but when Jesus comes back, you will live. The penalty you deserve and I deserve for turning our backs on God, for not treating him as he is, is washed away. The crushing judgment of God is poured out on Jesus because of absolutely nothing we did, because of the perfection of Jesus. Have you seen this Jesus? Have you put your life in His hands? Have you recognized what amazing offer He has for us? Have you recognized that He is God? That He's the one that we are freed to worship, that true freedom freedom from slavery to ourselves or whatever else we're running for is found in serving Him, being slaves to Him. 
See, all the other things we're tempted to worship cry out, serve us or die. Serve me my, my grade point average. Serve me my relationships, my, my spouse, my marriage, my children. That's what our old masters are crying out to us. But if you trust in Jesus, we have to say no, for Jesus has faced death for me. The temptation is to, to look at the world around us and go, that's what I'm going to live for. But Jesus says, no, I am the king. I have risen from death. As we look at the world and we have this distorted view and think we'd be way better off back in my old life with heaps of meat and just, you know, eating up and loving it. I want to be back in slavery. I want to go back to what that's doing. We need to think, no, shut up, trust in God, trust in His salvation, fear Him. If you trust in Jesus, and in Colossians 3, Paul says, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear also with Him in glory. Do you really want to substitute just a blink of an eyelid in life now for eternity because you think that being enslaved to yourself or some other saviour is more worthwhile than being serving the creator of the universe. When the world pulsates in around us and we're tempted to think that we can find joy somewhere other than Jesus, look to Him. And go, you are my joy. Not this. You are my master. Not my relationships or my money or my career. Jesus is my hope. What is the good of, of having a great career all my life or having lots of money in the bank when I die when I compare that to eternity because of Jesus? You are my safety. What could make me more safe than the creator of the universe who's dealt with God's wrath for me? You are my comfort. You know what it is to suffer, Jesus, and you've done it for me. You are my life. Is Jesus your life? Is your life so ordered that He is at the center, that when fears attempted to overcome us, you turn and say in Him, shut up, Rowan. Trust God. Trust He has died in your place. Trust He is my joy and my hope and my future and my safety and my comfort and my master and my life and serve Him. For that will see you live forever. How did Israel respond? They do exactly that. They come out of this amazing sign and say, we will serve the Lord, we will fear Him. And they turn to praise. That passage that Rachel read for us really was the summary of, of a song that Israel put together to sing to God. See, singing is a distinctly God-centered action. It's what Christians should do. Singing is the way we respond to what God has done for us. It's the right response to Him. Why do we sing? To remind one another, not of you know, how we feel right now, but of what God has done for us. We sing with our hearts. We sing loud. Uh, sometimes I think it's a bit odd, you know, you see in churches, people like, oh, yeah, we've got to get everything right. We want to make sure that what we're singing is true. But sometimes you see people kind of just standing there and they're singing, yeah, Jesus died for me. Jesus is awesome. I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner. And it's just like, are you serious? Like, Jesus, Jesus faced the penalty for the sin of the whole world for me and for you. And I'm looking bored while I'm singing? 
Like, do, do you not get it? You're going, yeah, I'd rather have meat in, Israel, in Egypt because meat was better back then. Like, you hear this phenomenal response to God given who He is and what He's done. We've, we've seen we need to get out of our slavery and put our, our life as serving Jesus. So why don't you look like it? Why don't you sing like that? Why don't you live your life in praise to this God who has bought your life at a price? and offering you life forever. Worship Him. We're going to do that in a second. And one of the ways we're going to do that is to sing together. Uh, But we're also going to celebrate in another symbol, another sign that Jesus gave us to remind us of what He did at the cross. That Jesus' body and blood were broken and shed for us, that we might be forgiven. We're going to celebrate in what Jesus called the the Lord's Supper, where we... um, have some some bread and some grape juice to remind us that the only reason we can be saved isn't because of some crushing water event, but that Jesus' body was killed for me and you. That the Creator of the universe submitted Himself to death so that you can live forever. It's this phenomenal symbol that says, I am saved only because of the body and blood of Jesus. Now the bread and the grape juice, they're just signs, just a symbol. It's not really Jesus' body and blood but that to help us to remember that we may only experience the joys of what He has given us. Freedom from slavery to ourselves or the things of this world if we participate in trusting in what Jesus has done. So if you trust Jesus, then won't you take this grape juice and this bread and let it, let it, as it gets passed around, let it go past, grab it, hold on to it. We're going to sing a song together, reminding one another of the truths of who Jesus is and what He's done. And then we're going to eat... Uh, and drink together at the end of that when I come up the front. But why don't I pray now? And we thank God for who He is and what He's done. Lord God, we want to thank You so much tonight that You have revealed Yourself throughout history, that we have seen clearly that You are the God who is in control and that true freedom is found in worshipping You and that worshipping You is with our whole lives. We pray that this night, no matter where we've come from, no matter what we think about You, we might see You clearly we might recognize we need to come before the crushing force of your judgment and that our only hope is in Jesus' body and blood shed for us in his forgiveness offered at the cross. Lord, we are so amazed. We are so thankful that Jesus has paid the price for us that we might stand forgiven. And we pray that this night we would choose to serve him. For in serving him is true freedom. Lord, remind us again afresh of the wonderful hope of the cross of your Son. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.